This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome back to 15-Minute Film Fanatics, the podcast where two friends and lifelong film fanatics sit and watch movies separately and then talk about them during the podcast for the first time. So sometimes the picks are mine, sometimes the picks are Mike's. Uh, this week is a Mike pick, and I'm so glad he did it. He picked The Silence of the Lambs, the, the renowned thriller from 1991, directed by Jonathan Demme, based upon the novel by Thomas Harris, uh, you know, skyrocketed Jodie Foster and um, certainly Anthony Hopkins, although he had a big career before this, but certainly made both of them household names. So our first segment, we always talk about what dawned on us watching it again, our big takeaways from the movie. So Mike, why don't you start us off? I mean, first, my, my question is, how do you get by not watching these movies? I think it's the same thing with Heat, you know, yeah. which is, is in my rotation. Sounds of the Lambs has been in my rotation uh, since I was a kid, but I got the chance to see it at an IFC theater in New York 10 years ago. It was on the big screen at midnight. Uh, wow. and, and it's just one of the most watchable films. There's something about its tension from beginning to end that carries you straight through. You know, I don't know when you take a bathroom break. Alfred Hitchcock once said that the length of a film should be directly related to the endurance of the human bladder. I've heard and that si too. Silence of the Lambs definitely is. You're in and out in less than two hours. In and out in less than two hours. It's like, a, it's like an hour 58. And I don't know why it wasn't in my rotation. Like I, I was as knocked out by it when it came out. I saw it in the theaters and everyone else. And I had seen it once or twice on cable, but then a long time went by. And it's, but it is, there's something that's so great about watching a movie that you already like and not, not even realizing how great it is after you've been away from it for 10 years. You know what's great about this movie too? And here's a question for you. Um, you know, I usually don't, I don't like movies about serial killers or books about serial killers. I actually find them kind of boring. Um, I think it's always kind of too cute. Like you have to get the clues and things like that. And, and, and the detective has to figure it out. And it's, you know, there's a whole bunch of movies like that. We've seen like with Morgan Freeman and stuff like um, as a detective. And this one seems to have all those things in it. Like um, I just read a book called The Snowman by Joe Nesbo. Harry Holes, the serial detective. I thought it was terrible. Cause by the time you, you figure out what's going on with the killer, I was just like, who cares? This movie has those things though. It has those elements like the killer's calling card and like, you know, the anagrams for the names and how one thing leads to another and the detective being manipulated and the big showdown at the end when she kills him, but it's different. So how would you say this movie's different than the run of the mill serial killer movie? The first is that it has dual villains, obviously. So that there's, there's two nemeses in the film, if you will. And then there's a bonus nemesis. So you have the actual killer who's doing um. It, you know, that one of the great uh, cliches of that genre that you're talking about is watching the killer uh, do their thing. And often when they're anonymous, all that text is in italics, you know, because right. you, you don't know who it is and everything gender. Yeah. Um, so the obviously the Buffalo Bill track is interesting, but it's separated uh, from the immediate charm of Hannibal Lecter, who is the, the obvious draw for this movie. He has an effect that we talked about in our podcast on the sweet smell of success where even if he's not on screen, people are talking about him all the time. They're generating information about him all the time. And so he's not allowed to leave your brain, even though he's on screen uh, famously for a very compressed period of time for the actual film. 
Yep. So I, I think that that's the, that's the first thing. And the second is the actual identification with somebody like, like Lecter, in which the bonus villain is actually Dr. Chilton. Uh, he's, the per, <laughs> he's the person that, no, that really nobody in this movie likes, even though you, right. can, you, can root for, you, know, you can root for a lot of other people besides Buffalo Bill. I will say that part of the separation of the charm and terror is not just the draw of Anthony Hopkins. Uh, this is something that I've said bef way before we had a podcast. The only villain in any movie that actually scares me or unnerves me is Buffalo Bill. Oh, I don't. I don't like his scenes. They make me unbelievably uncomfortable. Whatever that actor is doing with his voice is super scary. Uh, when she's in the well and she's screaming, and he mocks her and he screams back at her, that gets me every time. You can you can show me any number of horror films. You can show me Jason. You can show me Freddy Krueger. These people are not scary. Buffalo Bill is absolutely that shit crazy and terrifying what makes him more scary than than somebody like um you know uh michael myers and halloween or something like that you you almost know what michael myers wants in other words that that blank mask is supposed to be that that he's just unstoppable death you know he he wants to kill certain people and that's all he wants and his motivations are super crystal clear and he's easy to understand uh -huh. I don't understand what Buffalo Bill wants, even even certain scenes. You know, when, when she's screaming for help out of the well, he hums a little louder. You know, he's yeah. humming to himself while he's sewing because he doesn't want to hear it. Uh, and when she's screaming, he mocks her because obviously something's happening inside her. He he cares weirdly about that that dog. You know, that when they're picking apart the moss, they said, some you know, somebody fed him honey and nightshade yeah. and loved him. Right. And it, it flashes to the inside of his house. Um, he, ha he has desires. He's got wild desires. I'm not 100% sure what they are. Yeah. And th that's so unnerving. And what's so, what's so great about that? And that's Ted Levine, the, the actor who plays Buffalo Bill. He's so unnerving. I mean, a couple of things about him as a great, great villain, because it's true, Hannibal is the charming villain. Like, Hannibal is like Richard III, you know, or, or even like the Joker. <laughs> um, and, uh, and his charm kind of like, you know, uh, like makes you want to see him. But all the Buffalo Bill scenes, you just get upset. And it occurred to me, you know, watching this. So I said, this is from when? 1990, when was this movie made? 90, 1991. 91, right? I would have a hard time believing that this movie would get a green light today and show um, somebody like Buffalo Bill, who's clearly like sexually confused as the object of loathing or the object of terror. I just, I can't imagine. I think Hollywood, well, they, would, I think Hollywood would love the Clarice story of like her going up against the boys club and infiltrating the FBI and, and outdoing all the guys and Captain Marvel and stuff like that. Um, but I, I can't imagine the Buffalo Bill plot working today. Well, the thing is they also, but they cover that in the movie where Clarice says, you know, but I, 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 don't, under, I don't understand why that would be the case with his pathology. And uh, Dr. Lecter says, that's not his pathology at all. He thinks that's his pathology. Yeah. He's uh, tortured and abused and insane and much more interesting. And you can, you know, he, when, yeah. you know he, he says out of the two, he said, I, I saw a couple, like I knew them as a couple, and one of them was tedious. Yeah. Is it tedious, <laughs> right. that didn't even want to get into it, but the other was, was interesting. And that's why, you know, that's why he knows that it's a moth inside the, yeah. inside the throat. And, and like when, they're, when, when Debbie pans back, when he, when there's a one great scene where the camera kind of like swirls around, around his room. And also you see the bedspread has swastikas on it. And you're like, you're like okay, like, like, did I just see that for a second? So I think it's better that serial killers in movies usually have a nice, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. And you put the last piece in and it's like, oh, he's got the dog because his mother took his dog away. And that's why he kills women. And his mother was fat. Like, but none of that's in there. Right, he's making the he's making the um the skin costume. You see it on the on the stand there, right? 
and like presumably is, is he gonna wear it is he not like is that's why he needs him fat like you don't, you don't really get a full sense of what's going on in him and and that makes him much more i think horrifying yes i, I doubly horrifying is his impersonation of the guy who can't lift the couch into the van oh uh, yeah it's i don't I have nothing good, like we're supposed to be analytical on this podcast. I have no good reason why that should be doubly scary, but it's yeah. it's horrifying. Be it again, hor because I don't know what's going on. Yeah, and it's horrifying because you and I have talked about this in one of our, our past shows, but you know, we talked about what, what C.S. Lewis calls the fear of the numinous. Like the super, supernatural movies I find are far more scary than, than just a killer. Like I don't think, as long as it's a human being, I don't think it's that scary, except for this movie, except for him. Because his because his motivations are entirely clouded, and it's the same with um, it's the same with Doctor Lecter uh, when he kills those two guards. You know, finally, at, finally at the end, and hit the char the mask of charm is taken off. In fact, he puts on a new mask. He puts on the guy's yeah. skin mask after he cuts his face off. Well, I think he I think his motivation is is more understandable. I, mean, I just assume he's superior to everybody. So that's the ultimate. I'm gonna eat, I'm gonna eat my enemies, and that's how I'm gonna show my super, you know I, the census taker. And at the end, his uh you know wah wah line about having a friend for dinner. I think he's he is so far superior to other people that he'll just eat them. That it doesn't explain. Um, I understand why he would kill the two guards to make his escape, and I understand his compulsion to do whatever to them. I don't understand why he would then string somebody up uh, in order to cast fear into the hearts of everybody else. Well, I think that, that's, that's it. just pure crazy. That's exactly it. You know, like when he's a senator, you have the power now. It's it's to absolutely to cast fear into into the. That's that's why he tortures the senator when he asks her if she breastfed her, you know, her daughter. That it's it's purely to get a thrill out of having power over her. He loves her suit. Absolutely. I love your suit. Absolutely. All right. I'll see you in segment two where we talk about our favorite moments. Excellent. Okay. So welcome back. In the second segment, we like to talk about key scenes or scenes uh, that are indicative of the themes of the film as a whole. Dan, you have one. I can see it in your face. I, I got it? a lot of them, but it, it's actually a, a combination of scenes. And this is something that dawned on me watching it again. This probably dawned on you, uh, you know, far sooner than it did on me, but I'm going to give it a shot anyway. It was something I noticed about a third of the way through the film, and once I noticed it, I couldn't stop seeing it. I found it to be everywhere. And here's what it was. I've never seen a movie, and I've seen thousands of movies. I cannot think of a movie that has this many close-ups as Silence of the Lambs. The camera is always pushed right up to their faces. You've probably read about how Phil Spector created the wall of sound. You know, they had to push all the sound right up to get, to, get that, to get that great music. I thought the same thing was going on here, is that everything in the movie is a close-up. Like, for the quid pro quo scene, like, we expect that, right, for the, to, to create the tension. But, like, when you see Scott Glenn, like, the camera's right in his face. When she goes to um, interview, like, uh, Frederica's father, the camera's right there. When she's talking to the... Um, uh, uh, Ardella, the other FBI agent, they're trying to figure out, like, you know, you only cover what you see, and, and Jodie Foster's like, he knew her, he knew her. Like, the camera's right there, and it, once I started seeing it, I couldn't unsee it, and I think that's one of the reasons the movie's so unsettling, is that everything in the movie is in your face, right? Um, that, you know, when, when they unzip the bag for the autopsy scene, it's not, it goes, and you're like, oh, and it, it reminds you just how, how long that zipper has to be. And the movie has a reputation for being so violent and over the top, but I think like, like Hitchcock, you mentioned before, a lot of that violence is implied. 
you see a lot of gross pictures and stuff like that, but a lot of horrifying stuff is off screen. But I think that the character tension is created by all those close-ups. So all those moments are kind of my moment for this episode. And I think Demi, that's a wonderful, wonderful choice. I did notice that, and I, but I noticed it from one scene. And it started with one scene for me and started to branch out, which is um, when they're inspecting the dead girl's body and they have to put the, um, the VIX or whatever Smell it is. stuff under their nose. Yeah, yeah. Uh, under their nose. Um, and that's when you get, a, you get a shot of each person's face. Even the guy who, who then throws Clarice the little thing. Yeah. Um, it's, not, it's not like they give a three-quarters profile of him because he's yeah. unimportant. Um, they, don't, they don't actually break the sequence of, uh, of Jack to, to him, yep. to Clarice. And then I, I started to notice it through the movie, so I, I did. And also, um, she's out of breath or cannot speak at normal volume for 80% of her lines, which I find doubly unsettling as yes. the close-ups. Yeah, all the, all the breathing struck me as so right on. And, the, and he, like right from the beginning when she's running across the obstacle course, right, to the very end when she's in, when she's in the house, um, you totally get a sense of somebody breathing and hyperventilating and shaking a gun. Like, I, like I'm so glad a director let her be terrified because I think a lesser director and a lesser writer would have had her have all the confidence. She would have been like, you know, Jennifer Lopez and out of sight or something like that. She would have been like super cool, but she is absolutely terrified at the end as, as well as she should be. What, what was uh, your moment? So my moment is a, a really, really difficult problem if you're the director that doesn't necessarily happen in prose in the book, which is, uh, when Hannibal Lecter actually has to kill the two guards that are guarding him in Tennessee in order to escape. And the, the, the problem that they've set up is one that you set up rather nicely that we discussed before, which is that we've, we've had two killers, but one of them is not actually a killer. One of them, one of whose, all of whose violence is implied versus the weird scenes that we see with Buffalo Bill. Uh, but the movie doesn't work if Lecter is charming and then totally crazy and can't be charming anymore because it will actually retroactively destroy your vision of him <laughs> early in the film. It, it, he would not have won the Academy Award. So you've got to have him do something totally gruesome in 1991, but not actually send it spiraling uh, in, into a weird, uh, in, into some weird gruesome uh, horror flick. Right. It, because that actually does not have any suspense. That's, that's the opposite of suspense. It's a thing that's already happened versus a thing that could potentially happen. And so I find that the, the technical balance in that scene really is indicative of the, of the restraint in the film as a whole um, about what is shown versus not shown. A lot of it is quite, a lot of it is quite gruesome, like what he does to um, the, the guard, yes. you know, as he's, as he's swinging the nightstick, as he's coming towards him. Uh, these are all fascinating choices by uh, Hopkins and Demi that don't necessarily occur in prose because the, the, visceral impact of seeing what he's about to do uh, and seeing how frightened the guard is, is, is gonna scare us. So he has to be charming and gruesome at the same time, which Buffalo Bill never is. Um, and I don't, know, I don't know why that film is so compelling, but it's, it's weird and scary, but suspenseful all the way through by just a sequence of selections of what's shown and not shown and how much is just enough well, that's a great point because <clears throat> what's shown and not shown, of course, is the great fake out at the end with the wrong house, right? Like that's one of the all-time great where, where the director totally manipulates you, where you think you're going into one house with the characters, with Scott Glenn, but of course it's the wrong house. And the same thing happens when the first time you see the film and they think they're shooting Lecter on top of the elevator and that it's not Lecter and you're like, wait a minute, what's going on? It's, 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 that's, that's Jonathan Demme withholding information. And to the viewer, to the viewer's delight, once you find out what the, what the surprise is, right? 
Um, it's also great because you mentioned that you have to have this, you have to have this payoff for Hannibal to have the, the violence and the charm, right? And also the other challenge that Jonathan Demi had to meet was that how little Hannibal's in the movie because, you know, he's gone for the whole climax. The whole climax where she goes in there and figures out, you know, that it's Buffalo Bill. You, you, he's gone. And to the credit of the filmmakers, you don't miss him at that moment because you're so tied up with the, with the Jodie Foster plot. Just as when they're, when they're trying to get him in the elevator and all the cops are there in Tennessee, you don't really miss Jodie Foster because you're so glued on what's going to happen. And it's incredible that a movie can make that, that much suspense with a character who's only in the movie for, I don't know, like 25 minutes. Yeah, agree. But, you know, um, it, it then comes out that, so you think that Clarice has tricked him and what he's actually done is manipulated the system to get into a minimum security situation. Sure. And, that, and that's what becomes clear. And so what, what's underscored for me is the fallibility uh, of the FBI right before she's about to go bust uh, Buffalo Bill, which then is underscored by what you said, which is that uh, it's great that you have a SWAT team there and everything, but they're, they're at the wrong house. They're in the yeah. wrong state. I and her fallibility is one of the things I think that makes her so compelling. I mean, she's like, she's like the most likable character in, in, the, in the world, right? But she, because she's, she's just a little bit cocky when she's like an A minus, sir. Um, but and she really wants that job. And I don't care about her whole past, about her father, about why she wants to be a cop and stuff. You totally get the sense that she's trying to overcome her, like her hillbilliness and become respectable. And you're totally on her side but without the movie ever getting preachy, like you're glad, like when she gets, when she makes all the cops at the funeral parlor leave, that's a great bit, right? You're like, you're proud of her, if that makes sense. Like you're proud of her for what she does. Um, and, but her fallibility makes it interesting. Like when she's in the helicopter and she gets rattled a little bit and they do the autopsy scene, it reminded me of Richard Dreyfuss and Jaws when they do the autopsy scene. Yeah. He gets, he, get, he gets upset there a little bit. So I think that, um, you know, her, her, in, her fallibility makes her, um, makes the audience root for her. Just as one more thing, I, if I could add, um, a regular movie hero or heroine would have known it was Buffalo Bill way sooner. Like it takes her a while to figure out who he is when he's going through the business cards and then she sees the moth and then she slowly starts to like look for her gun. I think in a different movie, th th boom, that would have happened so fast, but you kind of see it like dawning on her and then realizing she's in trouble. In the beginning when they're doing the simulation and, she, and they go, bang, you're dead because you don't look at whatever it is, your blind, your blind spot or your, your, your danger zone. Like she's kind of learning and you see her learn, you know, as the movie goes on. Yeah, she should have, I mean, she's super famous, but she should have been more famous. She should yeah. be more famous. There's still that, time. That was another answer was, what was I, I can't believe after this, she kind of just, you know, did a couple more movies and that's it. Like, I, I can't believe she's not in a movie every two years. Uh, I would cast her in a movie. We're going to pause here because we just want to tell you something. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. So let me explain. The first point is it's free. Yeah. Second, they have all the tools that you need to create, record, and edit your podcast right on your phone or your laptop. Third, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so you can hear it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other places. You pick up sponsorships, you can make money from your podcast, and there's no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Always be closing, Mike. Always be closing. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. So welcome back to segment three where we talk about uh, the title or the ending or other big takeaways. So we just want to clarify something from segment two, Mike. That actor is Ted Levine who plays Buffalo Bill. And as a tribute to Ted Levine, he also plays Bosco in Heat and neither of us put that together. Oh, we missed it. Yeah, which is, which is a testament to his skill. So 
rather than talk about the title, which I think is kind of self-explanatory for this film uh, or the ending, if we want to talk about that in a bit, here's my question for you. I want to kind of, I want to, you know, blindside you with this question. And it has to do more with Clarice's character. A big thing is, you know, um, Hannibal Lecter says to her, you know, what does he do, this man you seek, right? And she says, remember what she says? He kills women. Yeah, he kills women. He says, no, that's incidental. What's the principal thing he does? What needs does he serve by killing? He covets. That is his nature, right? And he talks about Marcus Aurelius and something like that. So I thought that was a very striking line. So my question for you and a way to start us talking is, you know, what does she covet? What does Clarice covet? What, is, what does Clarice want? And does she get it? Yeah. She does and she does and she doesn't. You know, this very much struck me as a movie about transformations. Obviously, you can't have a moth, you know, as the central right. image, a moth right. coming out of a, out of a girl's, a, a dead girl's mouth uh, and not think of transformation. You know, um, at Buffalo Bill's failed transformation, yep. uh, Hannibal's longing to be free. Uh, you know, Jack's wishing that he were younger and that he were the action guy. And, and her transformation is she, she has this image in her brain of the, of the girl who catches the bad guys. Um, you know, in that, in that way, that's, that's how her backstory plays in, you know, she wants to catch so many bad guys that she goes back in time and nobody ever kills her, kills her father is what yeah, she wants. Guys at the and, and that's the, that's the image of herself that she wants to, she wants to transform, you know, out of the chrysalis of being a student to whatever in, into that, into that finale. But I think that the, the fallibility of the FBI as an organization and of kind of just human endeavor you know, if you can make it, if you can make it a little bit too grand there is, is exactly what she learns and what she takes away. So does she become uh, Agent Clarice Starling? She does. Yes. But, but she knows that she's lucky to be alive. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And she knows they're not going to catch Hannibal at the end when he says, don't worry, you're not going to trace this call. And she knows, right. Um, but she also learned something too. Like I love the scene. I love her insight when she says, uh, when her friend says, aren't you afraid he'll come after you? And she goes, no, he, I can't explain, but he would think it was rude. <laughs> And she's right. She's right. So she's learned something more that she couldn't learn in her pathology classes that she had, you know, which she had Scott Glenn as her professor. Well, she, she's the one that says, you know, we've said this about Buffalo Bill, but she says it about uh, Dr. Lecter in the movie. The, the hick cop in Tennessee says, is it true he's some kind of vampire? And she says, yeah. they don't have a name for what he is. Yeah. And the movie doesn't have a name for what he is either. That's terrific. That's terrific. So what do you, what's your big takeaway? What do you make of the title or the ending or, or any, anything in the movie? I don't understand why this movie is so rewatchable, but for me, the movie's rewatchable the same way I think like the Shawshank Redemption is rewatchable for some people. Uh -huh. um, you can't turn on the sound. Maybe it's something about that 90s soundtrack uh, that never gets old for me. I, I just think that the, sus the suspense and overall photography of the movie is so pretty. There's a lot of violent and gruesome images, um, but the even the colors that appear in the film are so closely controlled that I kind of get like a as I think about it right now, I get like a gray and blue tone yeah. in my head. Uh, and so the, the, the control of the visual look and feel of the film just make me want to watch it over and over. Yeah, I even love the font in the beginning. I even love the yes. font for the credits, that strange black font with the white outlines. Like that's such a strange looking thing. Like, and, that, you know, and there's so much of it in the beginning. I also, it's funny you said blue and gray because the scene where she goes to Ohio to go to Frederica's father, one of the notes I wrote down was that looks that is a perfect street. It doesn't look like a movie street, and the house looks perfect, like where the photos are, and it just it just look. It, it, there's so many things about the film that looks so real. Like her when she, when she gets her hair done, her makeup, her makeup doesn't look like she's Jodie Foster, 
in makeup. She looks like Clarice putting on a little bit too much makeup to make herself look like a grown up while she does this job to impress Scott Glenn and to show that she's got her, you know, her spurs on. And there's so many things in it that are so believable in the most, with the most crazy plot about a guy who puts moths in someone's mouth. And... You, you know what you look like to me with your good bag and your cheap shoes? Let's talk about that. What, what, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to say, I'm going to go all in and say, you love that bit about the cheap shoes. Naturally, yes. What is it about that you love? It's so startling. Uh, there's uh, a hundred things that are wrong with Clarice that he could pick on. Uh, but he some, it's, it's like a magnet to exactly the right thing that you would never have thought of, the combination that would never occur to you <laughs> in your head of exactly what's wrong with her. But yeah, she looks like she's in her mom's clothes. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly... It's exactly the thing that's inarticulate in the back of the viewer's head that he brings out and you go, oh, am I Dr. Lecter? Is it just that I can't put words to it and he can? By the way, this movie gets away with uh, some stuff that you should not be able to get away with. You know, like they don't, they don't, the modern FBI would find Buffalo Bill's house because they would be like, uh, I wonder who had a well, a strange or dry well put in their base within the last 30 years? Let's look, let's look up the blueprints. Let's the interview some, con let's some contractors. Uh, but I, I've never once watched this movie in the actual act of watching it, thought that well doesn't belong there because of course it does. Yeah. I don't know why, but it does. That didn't occur to me until this very second that you said this. So I'm like, oh yeah, of course this house has a well in the basement, right? With the moths flying around, absolutely. Without when, of course, you need a bucket and a hose and everything. Well, like that's that. the thing. Is it does the well give him the idea, or does he put does he put the well in after he has the idea? I don't know. I don't but know. It's 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 just part of the overall thingness of this movie that should not work. It, you shouldn't be able to get away with having your villain in the movie for 19 minutes and he wins the Academy Award. But for some reason, uh, it it makes his every single moment that he's on screen yeah. full of tension. You shouldn't be able to also, like on paper, you, you've said this before, it's one of your favorite things to talk about, Mike, is that like this shouldn't work on paper. Like this could have been so cringeworthy. Like, you know, she's the young FBI wannabe. He's a hardened serial killer who eats his victims and you put them together and it's a wild time. And, and like, you know what's great is like, they never have any, like they never come to some great mutual understanding. She never respects him. He never respects her. That's why I think the cheap shoes is so good because you're kind of hurt a little when he says that. And it reminds you who he is, just as when he's taunting the senator. Like you're horrified, you you feel terrible for the senator when he's up on when he's on the uh, the gurney speaking through his face mask. You're horrified, and then when she walks away and he starts saying the description, he's five foot five, he's blonde hair, whatever. And is that your constant? Like Jonathan Demi doesn't want you to fall in love with him or be charmed by him too much because otherwise the movie won't work. Also, I need a quick IMDb for the name of the actress uh, who plays the senator's daughter who is actually kidnapped. Um, from her first scene, from the first time that they cut away when she's singing Tom Petty, yeah, uh, and the way perfect. she's singing Tom Petty, to the way that she talks to her cat, to the way that she's full of desperation when she screams, to the way that she then tries to threaten him. Um, yeah, and then when, when Clarice finally breaks into the basement, she says, you're okay. And she says, just get me the fuck out of here. Yeah. That is 100% a fantastic and underrated performance. I've never heard her praised before, but let Brooke me just Smith. lay it down. Brooke Chris Smith, Smith is her name. if you're out here listening, what a performance. Yeah. Bravo. No, she's great. When she goes, I'll be right back. She's don't leave, don't leave, because that's exactly what you would scream. But it's I, the most I, realistic uh, imprisonment maybe on film. Yeah.
Absolutely, absolutely. All right, well, great pick, Mike. It was great talking to you about this. And one, one more, I can't resist one last question. Have you seen any of the other Hannibal Lecter movies? Absolutely not. I have not either, but I, I, um, I read a long time ago, I read the novel Red Dragon, which is the first one. Um, and I've never seen, you know, that was, a, they made a movie called Manhunter. Michael Mann directed it. Uh, and uh, that was, you know, that was kind of like a sleeper hit. And then once this came out, then they remade it as Red Dragon. But Some things are just untoppable. Yeah, absolutely. Even though one of our favorite writers, you know, wrote the screenplay to Hannibal. Who was that? David Mamet. He did? Oh, yeah, he was man. the script doctor for Hannibal. But I don't th from what I've read, I don't think it really worked. So I'll never know. Thanks for listening. Uh, we hope you enjoyed us talking about Silence of the Lambs, and we will see you next time. See you next time. Bye.